You're listening to Breakaway Wealth, the show designed to help you build wealth faster, think bigger, and break out of the herd. Now, here's your host, Jim Oliver. Welcome back, Breakaway Wealth. I'm your host, Jim Oliver, and with me today, DJ Van Curen. Welcome, DJ. Thanks for being on the show. Jim, thanks for having me. So, DJ, just before we get started, because there's a lot of cool stuff that I want to pick your brain about because the audience is going to get an insight into the ultra wealthy, that the people that you deal with. And I think everybody wants to know, how does the ultra wealthy think about money and what do they do with their money? But before we get into that, tell us a little bit about you and about your background. Sure. So I was an advisor in the 90s. So worked with a lot of clients on that. Sold that practice, went to Vietnam actually for a number of years and started up a coffee company, came back, decided what do I want to do? Put together some private money. That's when I started in real estate in 03 and started what I positioned to be the first single family REIT. Sold that, knowing, seeing that the market was coming down, went back to grad school at Harvard and then started working for some developers and fell into the family office space probably about eight years ago. Worked for my first billionaire family. And we were investing not only real estate, oil and gas. We had three people actively trading equities. We had five solar parks and then decided, look, I just want to focus on the real estate stuff. That's where really my passion is. So I also ended up working for the Heyman family of Giorgio Perfume, Georgia Beverly Hills. Did some work with a younger gen that owns one of the major league baseball teams and then started investing on behalf of numerous families with the first one being and working with the Marriott family. And then also found the Family Office Real Estate Institute. And we have exec ed programs with professors from Harvard and Wharton and MIT and University of Chicago and, and family office industry experts and real estate industry experts. We have the quarterly Family Office Real Estate Magazine. We do the largest family office real estate investing study in the world starting our fifth year. Podcasts, videos. We have a conference coming up uh, for families. And then we also have uh, a consortium coming up. And then working on my second book, which the first one is Family Office Real Estate Investing, write for Forbes on Family Office Real Estate Investing, and you know just love who I work with and real estate. No, and and I love that because there's two things that, and I'm sure there might be somebody in the audience that is in that wealth stratosphere there in the billionaire status, but most of the audience is not going to be. But getting that insight. Because I like what you said, DJ, is combining, you know, wealth building strategies and real estate. So one of the things that we do is we combine infinite banking with real estate or any cash flowing asset. But what's one of the best cash flowing assets is always real estate. You know, you mentioned quite a few other ones and I'm not knocking those, but real estate is the one that is over time has you know, seven out of 10 billionaires are, I'm sorry, seven out of 10 millionaires were created through, which doesn't seem like that much anymore, but it is created through real estate. And I think that number holds true for billionaires too, but I think it drops to six out of 10. But regardless, the majority of people that are billionaires and millionaires do it through real estate. And mm -hmm. rather than kind of go down that rabbit hole, talk to me about, because, you know, I being, I Believe it or not, in my neighborhood in South Dakota, there was a, a few billionaires in our neighborhood. And, you know, their investment styles, there, there was a lot of cash. You know, I mean, I, I always kind of laughed at the guy that managed their money because 
you know, the one guy, he just was a cash guy. So he had enough money, didn't really care. I'm like, well, what did you manage? I mean, how did you retire early? What kind of fee were you charging this guy to, to invest in cash? But that's a whole nother story. Getting guys, and when I say guys, I mean men and women, families that are in that billionaire, ultra wealthy arena. Talk to me about why they like real estate. What's their mentality with money now that they're, you could say, I don't, I don't want to say bulletproof because maybe nobody's bulletproof, but that's about as bulletproof as you get, right? Well, I'll tell you what. So when you look at, you know, people that are worth hundreds of millions, millions of dollars, billions of dollars, the only, everything is fundamentally the same, right? The difference is, is that you're adding zeros to it. So the biggest thing that you have to take a look at is the biggest issue that families have that people don't really know about. You look at the Vanderbilts, right? Cornelius Vanderbilt was the wealthiest in 1876. When he died, he passed 95% of the money to his son, right? His son took that, which was equivalent to $1.2 today. He doubled that money. Well, when you fast forward in 1972, when all the descendants came at Vanderbilt University, there was not one millionaire amongst them. So 70% of families' wealth is lost by the second generation. 90% is lost by the third generation. I am, you're talking to an evangelicist of real estate. I believe that real estate is the solution. Now, there's a lot of money that's made from real estate, just like you said. But the second greatest area of wealth creation for families is outside of where they made their money, whether it was widgets or, or plumbing or whatever, is real estate. Mm -hmm. And so that is something that is a very important asset class. And also, when you work for a family, you're told three things. And I got told the same three things. It says, this is what you, you're going to work for us. Here's three things, the top three priorities. Don't lose money. Don't lose money. Don't lose money. The average return for a family is about 7% on their whole portfolio. The average allocation to a, a family's portfolio is just over 24% of their total portfolio. And so you're 100% right. It's a way to offset, you know, and to build wealth for sure. Yeah, it's interesting because you, you think about it, and I think people have these dreams, like every time that the lottery gets to a billion and a half or whatever, like it was a few weeks ago, people get this dream. What would I do if instantly I was a billionaire, you know? And you think about it. Yeah, you want to preserve. You want to make sure, because even if you got a 5% return on a billion dollars and you had real estate in there to offset some income, right? That's a lot of money. And it's, you know, I don't know what the, uh, uh, I have a few friends that are billionaires and I would tell you their lifestyle isn't to the point where they are consuming that amount of money, right? And they're living a nice lifestyle. They're flying, they have, you know, jets and yachts and everything else, but it doesn't take as much money sometimes as people think. And so really you start to think generationally. And I think it's sad that those numbers that you just said, the Vanderbilts are a perfect example. And, and I've heard that those numbers before, but I'm really, we haven't on the show mentioned that in a while. So I'm glad you did, DJ. And why do you think that that happens? I mean, how, if you are a really wealthy family out there in the audience and you're thinking, 
because, you know, as you know, they're all over the place. I've got a friend that is one of the largest landowners in Nebraska, and you wouldn't know this guy was a billionaire. Uh, yeah. There's just no way you would ever guess, right? And I guarantee you, he doesn't, I don't know what strategies he has. He might not have any extensive strategies. You know, you know, there's a few things of why that happens. And, and once again, it doesn't matter how many zeros you have after your numbers, right? One is that when you look at anybody, you brought up lottery. When people win the lottery, they all lose. Yeah. Well, that's because they didn't know how to make it, right? right? So a lot of times you had the patriarch or matriarch that made that money. The younger generations don't. And about 50% of the kids don't want to deal with it. They're just like, send me a check. Yeah. Right? Well, now you're sort of getting lottery money if you think about it right like yeah. that and you're not you're not educated second is education understanding sitting down with the kids and saying this is our plan and this is how we're going to make investment decisions and starting to bring them into the mix in fact one of the best things i ever heard and this was a gentleman who's passed unfortunately i, I think they were worth about 400 million dollars and they gave his niece a thousand dollars. She was like 12 years old and says, I want you to pick a charity of where to put this out to. And all of a sudden that whole concept of what do I care about? Mm -hmm. What do I want to do? Now it's only a thousand, but it's starting to ingrain these type of thought processes, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes a patriarch matriarch, they're used to all that control. They don't bring in the other family members. It's interesting because just in general, you know, people would say that wealthy people, how do you compare wealthy people to poor people, right? Because I think that a little bit we're comparing people that are wealthy, what most people would consider wealthy, but then they're really the ultra wealthy. And I'm going to say like over a hundred million dollars or something mm -hmm. like that. We could draw the line there. But, you know, Robert Kiyosaki always says the difference between wealthy people and poor people is the, how, the direction their money flows. Poor people, money flows away from them. Wealthy people, money flows to them. And I would guess that part of the reason I would hire somebody like you if I were the family office is to get more money to flow to us. But then once we get that money, what do we do with it, right? I mean, you've got to have some families where the problem is, is there's too much money flowing in. Well, you know, when you have that kind of money, it typically comes from the sale of a business. Right. right. Or it comes from passing from somebody that sold a business of some sort and it comes in fast. Right. That's why when you'd hear about Sam Walton driving the same truck, well, you know, he's just doing his thing. And then all of a sudden this money just starts coming in. Well, there's a couple issues that you have is that once you have that money, you're probably not going to ever see that type of money ever again. Right. right. And so that's where it's like, just like people that retire, right? They might retire at age 65. They built up uh, 500,000, a million bucks, whatever that number is. They're like, I got to make sure that I don't lose this because you're not going to make that money again. Yeah. Right. And so you go from creating to a preservation mode is really what you do. Now, the issue that you have is that when you think about it, somebody spent their whole life creating chemicals, right? Or they had tires or they created widgets that they created. And that's all they did for 30, 40 years. It's no different than an engineer that worked at Boeing and that's all he knows. So now you have all this money that comes in. They don't understand private equity, real estate, hedge funds, venture capital, portfolio allocations, 
those are all things that people just do insurance strategies, right? That, I mean, that's something that that's all you're doing. It's not a matter of having understanding all of that stuff. So here they are saying, okay, I know I need to invest. I don't really know what direction to go. And 95% of the people that work for a family fall into it. Mm, so the right. first thing that they say is, and it's funny because my second uncle, he was telling me about who was managing money after he had a big exit. And he said, well, it's like his banker or something. I'm like, what? Well, who do I trust? I trust my accountant, my attorney, my banker, my advisor, my neighbor, right? And But what's the problem with them? They don't understand venture capital and hedge funds, and, yeah. right? but they trust them. So you're still in that issue of, well, where do I go? How do I do it? How do I go about? Because people spend their whole careers in just one area uh, when they're an investment professional. So education is a huge, huge key, you know, and, and it's a matter of, well, how do we do that? And like I said, the average returns about 7% for a, a family portfolio. And that's to maintain. And you do try to get some growth for sure in there. But you're going to be a little bit more, you know, a little bit more careful. You know what I really like, DJ, is that you're emphasizing education. Because, you know, I always say on this show, I hated school, but I love to learn and I love to educate myself. And the way that I thought that money worked and the way that I learned about money working as an advisor really isn't how money works. And what I, I'll give you an example of what I mean by that is, you know, when you are a fee-based financial planner, like I was for 15 years, you know, you have people come in, they tell you about their investment portfolio, whether like we used back in the day, Brinker Capital or something like that, this managed money platform. And then I would go out and tell people exactly what the Brinker person just said to me. And they would put, you know, they put assets under management. And you know what? We did it pretty well. I mean, we had 700 million under management without really trying that hard. But what I realized is that that's not how my clients became wealthy, just like you said. They owned businesses and they invested in real estate. But the goal of the average person, like you said, of building this nest egg and then hoping that you don't run out of money, it's different because you don't want to live too long because if you live too long, you run out of money and then you don't have anything, right? I mean, that's kind of somebody's strategy. I live in Southwest Florida, so there's I'm 58. I'm a young guy down here, right? But when you have real estate that you own and it cash flows, I've got friends that are in their 80s down here. They're not worried because yeah. guess what? Affordable housing is a tsunami that is not going anywhere, right? right. I mean, we're going to need more affordable housing. They have multifamily in a lot of northern states. And they just know, well, you know what? Inflation? Yeah, no problem. I'll just raise my rents. You know, they're going to increase taxes. Okay, well, I'll just buy more real estate, depreciate it, cost segregation, whatever they're going to do. Talk about that mentality and kind of your journey to fall in love with real estate because that's an unusual path that you took, which is really cool. Here's the thing. The main reason why I'm such a component of real estate is a couple of things. One is it allows you to take emotions out. You being an advisor, you know people are emotional, right? Oh my gosh, the market's going up. It's going down. I got to sell. I got to that. Well, if you own a piece of real estate, you can't just say, I'm selling. It's a hard, tangible asset, right? You don't have that luxury of just getting rid of it, right? So that's the first thing. So it's a tangible asset. You can see it. You can touch it. 
right? You can feel it. So you're actually unlike a stock, which is like, okay, yeah, I own the stock, but it's nothing that you can walk into. So that's another thing you mentioned about taxes. Yeah. I mean, you've got not only everything that you said from interest rate deductions to depreciation, amortization, to cost segregation, what else is out of there that people don't talk about is that if you own a piece of property and you're paying down that mortgage, and if it's got, you have somebody that's renting it from you, they're paying down your mortgage. Well, guess what? If you go to refinance in the future, you're not paying taxes on that money because loans aren't taxable. Right. So now you take out millions or hundreds or whatever the case is. And that's another tax benefit, right? Yeah. That you're pulling out tax free. And once again, you know, like you brought up too, income stream. And if you look historically, you look at the market, I went back all the way to when the REITs started and went back to real estate, right? So we went back as far as we can since they started tracking these REITs, public REITs, and the average return up till now in the stock market's been seven. In real estate, it's been 12. Right. And, you know, that continues to, to go on. And the other thing too is that the one thing that families do have is they have patient capital. Right. They don't have to sell at any period of time. And when you look back at the people like a Warren Buffett, he's bought and hold, held, right? And, yeah. and, and it's one of those things where you're like, well, just, I mean, what happened if you just bought Microsoft, you bought uh, GE, you bought Apple and did nothing, right? Where would you be today? Right. And so it's a matter of taking the long-term strategy and it's, it's something you can pass down to your kids and it's pretty easy to understand. You know, I love what you, in really kind of to summarize the message that I'm taking from you, DJ, is education, think long term and preserve and leave a legacy and teach your kids how to educate and, and educate your kids to teach them how to, to do the same and then rinse and repeat. You know, there's a lot yep. of patterns in real estate and that's one of the reasons I like it because it is rinse and repeat. Once mm -hmm. you learn how to do it, whether it's, you know, you're going to go in and, and remodel a multifamily and refinance and I mean, whatever you're doing, you could rinse and repeat it. Now you just got to go find deals where the math makes sense. And that's another thing that I love about real estate. And you mentioned as well is if you want to buy my house, then I say, well, you know what, for me to emotionally sell you my house, here's the price. And then yeah. we haggle on that. But yep. when you're going to go buy a multifamily, we look at the books, we look at the tax return. And we say, this is what it's worth. It's, it's not emotional. And one yeah. of the biggest things I learned when I started this, started doing this in, in 03, and it's something I live by today, one of the credos I live by, which is if you find that perfect property today and you lose it, well, tomorrow you're going to find something as good, if not better. Yeah. yeah. So don't, you know, but a home, like you were saying, it's an emotional purchase. Oh my right. gosh, I love this. I could see my kids growing up, et cetera. When you can separate yourself and truly, you know what? I lose it. I lose it. So what? You're going to find something. I relate like that to my dating life too, DJ. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding to anyone <laughs> watching. <laughs> You're the best. <laughs> uh, uh, so, uh, all right, DJ, on that note, let's uh, start to wrap it up here. Let me, you know, you've obviously gotten a lot of great advice in your life. What's the best advice you've ever gotten? You know what? I don't know if it's so much advice as some of the things I've picked up from all the patriarchs I've worked with. Yeah. They will surround themselves with 
very smart people. However, at the end of the day, they bet on themselves. Love it. And Love it's it. like, if I fail, I'm failing. It's me. If I'm making it, I'm making it. And that's biggest thing I've, I've taken away from working for these families. I love that. Okay, last question. If you could only retain the knowledge that you've received from one book that you've read, DJ, what would it be? Uh, hands down, Timing the Real Estate Market by Craig. Uh, he's out of Texas. I'm trying to think. I, I can get that over to you, but we'll it's one it of the first, the first book that I, or my first year of in real estate, I read everything from for a full year. Every book I could from Carlton Sheets, if you remember yeah, Carlton Sheets, I do remember Carlton. all the way to textbooks. And yeah. it's funny because all of it's true. Yeah. It's a matter of whether you do it or not. But the timing, the real estate market was the best book I ever read because it made me aware of seeing the recession that was coming, for example. Yeah. And then there's other market cycle books, but that was the easiest to understand. And what I would say, that's a awesome. must read. We'll put that in the uh, meeting notes. And DJ, thank you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom and your insights from working with the ultra wealthy in the background that you have, which is awesome. And I really, really appreciate it. Audience, we're going to end the way we always end with the incredible words of Earl Nightingale. So take it away, Earl. Here's the key to success and the key to failure. We become what we think about. Now let me say that again. We become what we think about. Once again, thank you so much for taking the time to hear what was shared on today's podcast. If you are looking to discover new wealth building strategies, then go to community.createtailwind.com. That's community.createtailwind.com to join our free online community and get access to free courses and in-depth training videos designed to help you build wealth and break away from the herd. Click the link in the show notes to access the community today. Thanks again for listening.